step into the cloud. Shalom. Thank you for joining us for the Sermon of the Last Sunday of Epiphany, February 14th, 2021, from Christchurch, Jerusalem. The Reverend David Pelegi says Christians have bought into the lie that the gospel is about us or that the goal of life is our happiness. The gospel is not about us, but about God's holiness, and the goal of our life is to grow in holiness. God allows us glimpses of His holiness, His goodness, as He invites us near. The transfiguration is one of those glimpses of God's glory. Let us draw near with awe and respect and accept God's invitation to become holy as He is holy. Are you blessed by our teaching audio? Are you joining us virtually on Facebook or YouTube? We're so glad to have you walking through these difficult days with us. Let us know you are watching or listening by sending us a message on Facebook or by making a donation to the church, the Mercy Fund, or other projects listed on our website, ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Toda Rabbah! Now, Canon Daryl Fenton starts us off with a word of prayer. Next item of worship is the collect. The collect is an old word for a prayer of all the people. And though normally the leader offers it, let's all say it together tonight as we come to the reading of God's word. Praying together, Almighty God, whose Son, our Savior, is the light of the world, grant that your people, enlightened by your word and sacraments, may shine with the radiance of his glory, that he may be worshipped and obeyed to the ends of the earth, through Jesus the Anointed One, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, now and forever. Amen. You may be seated for the reading of the Lord's Word. I'll be reading from 2 Kings chapter 2, 1-12. through 12. And it came to pass... When the Lord was about to take up Elijah, sorry, Elijah, into heaven by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Then Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Now the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel, came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep silent. Then Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. Now the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho came to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? So he answered, Yes, I know. Keep silent. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on, and fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood facing them, at a distance, while the two of them stood by the Jordan. Now Elijah took his mantle, rolled it up, and struck the water. And it was divided this way and that, 
so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. And so it was, when they had crossed over, that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask, what may I do for you before I am taken away from you? Elisha said, Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. So he said, You have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. Then it happened as they continued on and talked that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. So he saw him no more, and he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into two pieces. This is the word of the Lord. Our second reading is taken from the book of Exodus, chapter 24. Now he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Adab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to to the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel, who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel he did not lay his hand. So they saw God, and they ate and drank. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and be there, and I will give you tablets of stone and the law and commandments which I have written, that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man has a difficulty, let him go to them. Then Moses went up into the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. This is the word of the Lord. Today, around the world, Christians celebrate the transfiguration of Jesus. And like these other two scriptures we've just heard, it's the intrusion of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob into mortal lives. So please stand with me 
as we hear this gospel according to Mark, the ninth chapter, beginning at the second verse. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Now, as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. And let's pray. Father in heaven, you sent your son Jesus to be a teacher and to teach us and to bring light and life into our lives. And we pray this evening that uh, the spirit of Jesus will be here amongst us, that it will bring us instruction, guidance, direction, real Torah. We pray that not only would you teach us, but that you would give us the grace to hear your words, to be challenged, and to be obedient to what we hear. Lord, we need your help. Give us the power of your Holy Spirit and your grace to do these things. In Jesus' name, for the sake of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The lighting up here is not very good, or my glasses are bad, or old age is coming on faster than I was um, planning. That's the way old age is. It always shows up when you least expect it. Just like to, um, of course, say some words about the gospel passage. I think it's a very, very significant passage, extremely important in the life of Jesus. It is, uh, or has traditionally been uh, understood to be important in the life of the church. That's why twice uh, in every liturgical year, we remember or um, we, you might say, we read the story once again of Jesus going up the mountain. That, of course, is um, recorded for us in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and uh, in the epistle of Peter. Uh, he remembers, uh, the author of Peter remembers this event as well. And perhaps we and um, many church circles or in many uh, Christian traditions, we actually 
don't take it very seriously. It's not really important to us. We're not quite sure what to do with all this, uh, these pyrotechnic, pyrotechnics. Yes, Jesus goes up, he glows, he shines. We even have that song, Shine, Jesus, Shine. <clears throat> yes, and he comes down, and it's okay. You know, that's very nice. And Jesus then makes his way to Jerusalem. We started the season of Epiphany. We started the season of Epiphany with the baptism. And when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, somewhere in the Jordan River, Jesus heard a voice. It was the voice of his father. It was a voice of love. It was God rejoicing over his son. It was a voice of affirmation. Yes, you are my beloved son, or you are the son that I love. It's not certain if other people hear that voice, but Jesus hears that voice. And he understands it to be God's seal of approval, or again, God's confirmation. And from the baptism, Jesus begins his ministry, ministry of power. And we end the season of Epiphany this Sunday also with that voice, that voice that comes from God the Father. But this time the voice isn't for Jesus, the voice is for us. And it, will, it should behoove us, I think, to pay very close attention to the voice. Even if we think, oh, I'm very familiar with what uh, the voice declares. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Last week, we talked about the kingdom of heaven. And we talked about the kingdom of heaven, yes, as it relates to holiness and life. We are trying to think of a way to talk about or to think about theologically What does it mean when Jesus says, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand? Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, same thing. And Jesus comes and he begins to heal and he begins to cast out demons and he begins to raise the dead and feed the hungry and so on. And what we tried to to explain last week was that Jesus, yes, who's anointed by God, who's a part of the Godhead, that he comes in order to confront the forces of death. He comes to confront death itself and to bring life and to bring a healing to the creation. And we talked about death Uh, especially as impurity. We had spiritual death, which was the demonic. We had physical death, yes, which uh, makes people unclean, according to the book of Leviticus. And this physical death would, would be things like touching a dead body or touching a dead animal that wasn't slaughtered properly. Uh, the afterbirth uh, of a woman's delivery and so on and so forth. And also there is a moral impurity. 
Yes, this moral impurity would include things like idolatry and um, immorality, murder, and whatnot. And the ministry of Jesus is that he comes and that he overcomes all of these forms of impurity, all of these forms of death, whether it's demonic possession, whether he's healing a woman who has the issue of blood or a leper, both unclean according to uh, the first half of the book of Leviticus, or whether he's confronting uh, a moral impurity. People are uh, uh, sinning and bringing about death because we all know that the consequences of sin is death. And so Jesus brings life. Now, how is it possible? We discussed last week How is it possible that Jesus overcomes all of this? It's because of of his holiness. God in his holiness, yes, is life. We don't have time to discuss it this evening or we'd be here a long time. But if we did, I could show you from the scripture. Yes, that holiness, and of course, if we want to ascribe one a characteristic, or we want to describe God in one word, that one word would be holy. That holiness, God's holiness, yes, is the same as life. And life is always overcoming death. We see it not only throughout the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, we see it in the ministry of Jesus. And so here we have a story, we're going to continue this week in a way from what we discussed last week. Here we have a story about God's holiness. It's about Jesus who takes his disciples and he goes up a mountain. Now you could say to me, wait a minute, I don't read anything about holiness in there. Actually, holiness is all over the story. It's just called glory. Glory is holiness revealed. Glory is, uh, is, uh, is something, God's holiness, whether it's his power or whether it's goodness. And here, by the way, I need to emphasize that what it means for the God of Israel to be holy, it's not that he's other and different and that he's powerful and that he creates uh, everything. It's not that... Um, He is totally separate from his creation. And that we as human beings can't manipulate him or somehow, you know, use uh, him as a form of magic. It's also that he's good. That's what it means for God to be holy. It means that he is good. And may I remind you that uh, in um, Exodus 33, when Moses says, I want to see your glory. In other words, I want you to reveal your holiness to me. God says, you can't really see me fully. Yes, but I will let my goodness pass by. My compassion, my mercy. Yes, my forgiveness. You can see those things. And by seeing those things, you see my, you see my glory. So God in his holiness, God in his holiness, yes, reveals himself. He reveals glimpses to us, yes, and that's what we call glory. 
Because obviously we could not, we could not in any way take in more than that. Yes, we can take in little bits. You know, the God of the Bible, for example, the God who comes down on Sinai when Moses is there, he comes down in a cloud. He has to be hidden. The God who fills the temple at Solomon's dedication is a God who comes down in the cloud. Yes, people see a manifestation of it, but they don't, we don't see God fully. And if you think this is just some kind of Old Testament idea, but that in Jesus we see it all, we don't. It's still a glimpse. It just reminds you of the words of the Apostle Paul who writes in, um, who writes in Timothy the following. He says, um, in this uh, Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, in the sight of God who gives, who gives life to everything, very good, God, life is obviously connected together, And of Jesus Christ, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God be blessed, the only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and lives in inapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. This is the God, yes, who is going to reveal his glory on the mountain. And the glory that he's going to reveal, or the glimpse, you might say, of of that glory, is going to be his son, yes, his one and only son, the son that he loves. And so... What does all this, yeah, what does all this mean? Yeah, what does all this mean to, to Jesus? What does it mean to the disciples? You know, what does it mean to us? This whole event, this event in which Jesus is glorified. So let's take it in turn. Then we'll come back to glory at the end. Jesus. Yes. What is, the, what is the purpose of the transfiguration for? Well, I may, first and foremost, it's for Jesus himself. Now, I know I'll, I'll, I'll get emails and this morning uh, when we were worshiping and praying in the garden, and I uh, proposed the following. A few people picked up, you know, rocks and threw them at me. Um, I, I managed to survive. But I would like to propose that the transfiguration is such an important turning point, is uh, such an important uh, event in the life of Jesus, simply because when Jesus comes onto the scene, Jesus himself, at least I'm convinced, does not know when he's 12 years old and he's skipping around the streets of Jerusalem, he doesn't say to himself, oh, I can't wait. I'm going to come back here and be crucified one day. Yes, that uh, 
Jesus, like the rest of us, yes, has to discern God's will. He has to come to this place of understanding of what God wants him to do. And he does it like we do, through scriptures, through prayer, through listening to God's voice, so on and so forth. And Jesus begins his ministry. He's extremely popular. He's healing. He's casting out demons. And the people of Capernaum, they say, we want to make you a king. And it's at that point, I believe, Jesus says to his disciples, gentlemen, pack your bags. We're going on a trip. And he goes up to an area in what is today northern Israel, which at that time wasn't Jewish. Uh, No one was asking for healing. Nobody was asking for teaching. And then he says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter, of course, gets it right. But then Peter says, okay, Jesus, you're going to Jerusalem to be the Messiah. I want to be the prime minister. And uh, Judas wants to, to run the treasury or the Federal Reserve or the income tax. I don't know. And Andrew wants to be the secretary of the Navy. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You don't know what you're talking about. But that's a pretty drastic, radical idea that what it means to be the Messiah means one goes to Jerusalem, allows oneself to be humiliated, to be shamed, yes, to be crucified. Wait a minute. And so when Jesus goes up onto the mountain, surely he's receiving, by being glorified, he's receiving, is he not, God's reassurance. God was saying to him, I will not let you rot in the grave. Go. Go with confidence. And Jesus comes down off of that mountain and goes with determination to Jerusalem. He has one more, you might say, uh, struggle. That's in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's some interesting parallels between uh, what happens in the garden and what happened on this mountaintop. But God is reassuring his son. And by the way, he reassures his son by um, sending him Moses and Elijah. Now, both Moses and Elijah... Uh, being present on that mountain, I think it'd be a little cheap. Not cheap, just not convincing. You can't say things are not true anymore in the day and age in which we live. You have to say they're not convincing. So let's say in this case, it's not convincing to suggest that Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets. I think instead, there's something else going on. One, Moses, uh, or at least Elijah, as we know, did not die. Secondly, um, Moses, according to many Jews in the Second Temple period, Moses also did not die. Moses went up, yes, and God took him to heaven. And so it was widely believed, yes, that uh, both Moses, but Moses doesn't die, Elijah doesn't die. Both encounter God, yes, at Sinai, on this high mountain. And both have huge amounts of opposition, and yet they have to remain faithful. And so 
again, all of this, I believe, is there to encourage Jesus, to reassure Jesus, because Jesus also is human. And Jesus could doubt, or he could say to himself, you know, there's got to be a better plan than this. There's got to be a plan B, because this doesn't make sense. So that transfiguration, that glorification is for Jesus. And it's also for the disciples. Obviously, the voice is directed towards the disciples, is it not? And these disciples, again, they, they understand, like so many millions of people around the world, including millions of committed Christians, that Jesus is special. Yes, um, I once had a teacher at uh, Hebrew University, a very, very lovely man who I... Uh, admire greatly to this day. He, he uh, was, uh, is a, uh, a great genius uh, of Second Temple period Jewish literature, not a believer uh, in Jesus at all. But he said in his class one day that Jesus is the most incredible person who ever lived in human history. And so we have huge numbers of people then and huge numbers of people now who believe that Jesus uh, himself, yes, Jesus is a person, is incredible, outstanding, um, you know, one of a kind. That's not the issue. The issue is, you might say, the messianic agenda that Jesus is going to propose. And for these disciples and for millions of secular people and even I'm sorry to say for Christians, the Messiah that we want, the redemption that we want, the salvation that we want is not the salvation that we need. And many people reject not Jesus himself. They just reject the agenda. They reject the program. That the program is that there is life and death. Yes, and out of shame and humiliation and suffering... Out of self-giving comes life. By the way, we have a church full of people. I'm talking about millions of people around the world. And they're in church. And they've latched on to Jesus. Yes. As a way to achieve some kind of human flourishing. Jesus is going to help me pass my medical exam. Jesus is going to make me successful as a mother. Jesus is going to bless my business, especially if I give God 10%. Now, all of that may be good to start off with, yes, but that's, yeah, that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. And so these disciples, they need to hear, yes, that uh, this radical idea that Jesus talks about, yes, in in Mark chapter 8, of self-giving, yes, of, of one of, of the last being uh, first, and the first end up being last, or picking up a cross and following Jesus. Again, doesn't make human sense. They need to see that, uh, that God himself is behind this. Yes, that Jesus isn't going to the cross, and it's not going to be some kind of accident. 
course, those who are familiar with the um, Hebrew Bible or Jewish tradition know, we, I think you know that um, Jewish people divide the Scripture into the, their Bible into three parts. You have the, 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 the Law of Moses or the Torah. We have the Prophets and we have the writings, which includes the Psalms and the Proverbs and, and all the historical books. And I think most people are aware that uh, when the voice comes from heaven, the voice is going to affirm, yes, the, Jesus and this messianic agenda of self-giving, of dying to give, give himself as a ransom for many, with every portion of Scripture. This is my son, comes from what? Psalm chapter 2. Whom I love comes from Isaiah 42. So we have the writings, the prophets, yes. Listen to him comes from Deuteronomy, yes. So God has confirmed his son from every portion of Scripture. Jesus himself, yes. Jesus himself, and uh, at the end of Luke's gospel, when he appears in the upper room and all of his disciples are shocked and they, they, they don't get it. It says in uh, the last chapter of Luke, verse 44, he says, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. By the way, this is summed up very beautifully in the Creed. It was crucified, died, and was buried. Can you finish the sentence? According to the scriptures. According to the scriptures. So the disciples, especially those three who will end, who will end up being the pillars of the church, they need that confirmation as well. They need to hear God speak. They need to see Jesus right? Glorified, even if just for a moment. Now, it's all very nice that it happens 2,000 years ago. But can we ask ourselves, what does this mean to us? Yes, God's glory, God's holiness, God's, yes, victory over death. So how would we think about this? Or what, how would this apply to us? I mean, on one hand, we could look at, this, at the transfiguration and we could easily, and we, we, we should say to ourselves, you know, I need to be faithful because if I'm faithful as Jesus was faithful, yes, There is a reward. There is actual glorification. And so the temptations that might pull us here or might pull us there, or the temptations, especially as we get older and uh, we get tired and we want to quit, yes, this passage uh, surely should encourage us. Maybe it will encourage uh, us if we... Um, are worried about hard times, yes, coming in the future. Many of my friends are convinced that things are going to get worse and worse 
And so if that is indeed the case, we need to hold on to passages like this. Or for some of us who are coming to the end of our lives, yes, maybe this passage gives us an expectation and a hope. But I think there's something, I would hope, there's something more to it than that. And this is where we in our culture and in the church today, and perhaps it's in every generation, but it's especially in our generation, we, yes, have no regard for God's holiness. We read stories like this, and they don't move this, move us. And a huge number of Christians have been sold a lie. The lie that they've been sold is simply this. The gospel is about you and me going to heaven. And all we need to do is to trust Christ or have faith, and everything's going to end up okay. That's sort of the lie of the, the revivalist, uh, the evangelist. Yes. Maybe they didn't mean to uh, present the gospel in this kind of minimalistic way, but that's how it's perceived. Or it's perceived by a more current lie. Yes, that the goal of life is happiness. Actually, the goal of life is holiness, not happiness. And somehow, if I'm going to church or go, being confirmed or you, you know, singing in the choir or accepting Jesus into my heart will make my life easier and make me, you know, more successful, then okay, I'll do it. And when it doesn't work, I'll leave the church. Yes? This is a situation in which we find ourselves in. But there's so much more. And what is that so much more? So much more is that we are invited into the cloud. Remember, there's a cloud that comes over. We're invited into that cloud. Now, that cloud wasn't fog, and it wasn't a snowstorm. Yes, it's the presence of God, hidden yet revealed. And the question is, are we willing to enter the cloud? Now, to enter the cloud, you have to climb the mountain. I'm not being allegorical here, saying that one has to make the effort. One, one has to want to experience the presence of the Lord. And in order to experience the presence of the Lord, you, we have to have a certain amount of fear. Not fear in the sense that we're afraid, afraid, but fear as these disciples did on the mountain. Because that fear was, I don't think, it was, was, a, was this awe, yes, of, of uh, encountering the living God, a holy God, yes, a God who is other beyond their expectations beyond anything they could imagine. Not something they read about or prayed about. They actually encountered it. Now, how do I know that we can enter the cloud? 
Yes? How do I know that we can taste and encounter the glory of the Lord? Well, I'll tell you how. Because it helps, all of this, all of this is helped in, in 2 Corinthians. And it says the following, talking about, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now, the whole passage is about Moses coming down from Sinai. And perhaps you remember that when he came down, his, he, he had encountered God's glory. His face uh, was shining, and uh, it blinded the, the Israelites. And it says, we who with unveiled faces, unlike the Israelites who had to cover their faces, we don't cover our faces, yes, uh, we reflect the Lord's glory and are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, yes, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now, first of all, notice all of that is in the present tense. It's not something that's going to happen to us in the future or has to happen to us in the future. It's something that can happen to us in the here and now, that we can... Yes, behold the Lord's glory. And it says, we, we all reflect, or it says here, we contemplate. Meaning the Greek word is that we stare intently at the Lord's glory, just uh, at the Lord himself. And by the way, the glory of God in this passage and the glory of God in the passage uh, in Mark chapter 9, is Jesus himself. It says we gaze intently as if someone is gazing in a mirror, but we're not looking at ourselves, fixing our hair, checking our complexion. We're looking at the Lord. Or the word reflected also can equally mean we can contemplate, yes, this glory of God. Now, how do we contemplate this, right? Contemplation, the contemplation is by listening to that voice, yes? Just as God speaks to those disciples, the voice of the Lord speaks to us. And we hear that voice, and we see the Lord, by the way, in the beauty of holiness, when we read the Scripture, when we pray, when we wait before him, when we practice his presence, when we imitate his life, yes, then that glory, which can be God's goodness, but also his holiness, yes, it becomes, yeah, the, uh, the object of what we seek now, the purpose of all of this, the purpose of God's glory, is not simply to have a mystical experience. It's not to, and if you have a mystical experience, great. They're wonderful. Everyone should have a few in their lifetime. But that's not the goal. Paul says here, it says we are being transformed. We are being transformed. And the word transformation here is the same word that's used 
of Jesus in Mark chapter 9. Just as Jesus was transfigured or transformed and the disciples saw the glory of God, yes, that God himself wants to share that same glory with us. And this, by the way, is quite evident in John chapter 17. He wants to share that same glory with us in order that we also will be transformed, that we will be changed, that we won't just be saved, you know, very content with our life, yes, to, to live in our crankiness or to tolerate our sin or to tolerate our brokenness, but to reassuring ourselves, oh, but I'm going to heaven. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Surely God calls us to much more than that. Or just to say, well, oh, I, I, you, know, you know, it's a good thing I'm a Christian because, you know, being a follower of Jesus gives me a wonderful sex life. It helps me with my diet plan. Boy, my business is really thriving. <laughs> I mean, we're called to something much more than that. It is true God wants to bless us. It's true God wants to bless every part of our life. But that blessing doesn't come uh, when we grab onto it and hold onto it or seek it first and foremost. The blessing comes with holiness. The blessing comes when we give ourselves, when there's self-giving. Actually, when we pick up our cross, yes? When we, you know, seek to be last instead of first. That's when we have the blessings. And that's when we know the fullness of life, including great joy and satisfaction. But the whole culture and the whole society virtually doesn't understand that. And of course, the more we strive... And the more we seek after these things, ultimately the more disappointed we will be. And in the end, I don't think I have to remind anyone, yes, that all the health and all the diet plans and all the hours at the gym yes, and all of the carrot shakes that we've been drinking and avocados and... Uh, you know, whatever it may be, all the self-improvement courses we took all end up turning to dust, yes? Turning to ashes. That is, yes, the glory of the Lord, the holiness of God. On one hand, we shouldn't be afraid of it, but on the other hand, Yes, we should enter the cloud with awe and respect and a certain amount of caution. Because God's holiness, it can be, it is, as we read in Ezekiel 24, it is a consuming fire. On one hand, it, like without fire, I'm not sure there would be life or there wouldn't be a very high quality of life. There would be uh, no way to cook, no way to keep warm, and uh, no way to, uh, to, to manufacture anything. But at the same time, that which is so helpful 
And so much a blessing is also dangerous. Yeah? That holiness can end up burning us. It can end up destroying us if we're not cautious. Yeah? So if we don't pro- approach it with that respect. And so we want to enter it. We want to climb up that mountain, not to stay there. Yes, to behold his glory through, through this contemplation. Yes, to get a vision of who he is. And I think once we have that vision of who God is and who he wants us to be, not because the preacher told me, not because the Bible says we should do it, not because I heard it on the Christian TV program, then we will do anything, yes, and cooperate in any way to allow ourselves to be transformed into his image because we will behold. We will see him for who he really is. Yeah? It can't, if there's no vision, to quote some famous professor from Missouri, yes, if there's no vision, yes, there's no desire there will be no desire to change. And so it's my appeal or our, you know, to, to, to everyone, yes, is that we enter the cloud. Yes, not just once, but as regularly as possible. Yes, to have a better understanding of who Jesus is. Yes, and what it means to be his follower. We ask this in the mighty name. We ask these things, Lord, that you again give us grace. We need your grace. Lord, we need a vision of who you are. And once again, we ask that you would reveal yourself to each one of us. Holy, other, glorious, good, who calls each one of us Yes, to listen to him. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you and blessings from the city of the king.